Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. At the age of 16, Lane Beachley became a professional surfer and went on to become the greatest surfer in history, securing seven world titles. And she has also recently just won her eighth World Masters Championship. But her success hasn't come without hurdles. In our chat, Lane shares how her first six world titles were won on fear. And her sweetest one, the seventh one, is where she learnt to embrace the language of love she realised that she was enough and she gave up the struggle. After losing her mum at an early age, finding out that she was adopted at the age of eight and tackling chronic fatigue later in life, Lane has fought her way back to herself. Married to Kurt Pingilly from In Excess fame, Lane lives a full life as a keynote speaker and currently serves as the chair of Surfing Australia. Lane is as down to earth as you'd expect and is the evidence of someone who challenges not only their external world, but her internal world on a daily basis, seeking to live life in an unstoppable way. Soak up the love of life that oozes from Lane Beachley. Lane, it's great to be connecting with you. You too, Ali, thank you. I, there's plenty of things that I wanna dive into and unpack from the successes that you've had, um, some of the things that you've navigated in your career mm -hmm. and what you're looking at in terms of where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. Where I'd love to start is I almost want to take you back and love for you to let me know what it was like or what was going through your mind. What did it feel like, that very first world title that you won? The first world title is wholly wrapped in relief because I'd been declaring to the world for a good 16 years that I was going to be a world champion. So when I substantiated that claim and laid my hand on the trophy, I felt nothing but relief. And I know my competitors felt the same way. <laughs> like, thank God you can shut up about it and <laughs> get on with it, Beachley. 16 years is a long time. It is. So I declared to the world as an eight-year-old I was going to be a world champion and then I won my first world title. I, I mean, I joined the Pro Tour when I was 16 and then I won my first world title eight years into being a pro surfer. So does that add up to 16 years? It might actually be yeah. different. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I won my first world title when I was 26 and I look at women surfing today and Stephanie Gilmore won her sixth world title at the same age I won my first. <laughs> so I was a late bloomer, shall we say. Um, and I struggled and, and overcame a, a myriad of, of challenges and adversity to get there. However, uh, I do remember the moment that I won it because I didn't even know I had. It was just that the announcer in France was declaring that there was a new world champion of surfing and I was looking around going, who would that be? Were you in the water? I was the in the time. water, yeah. I'd just come out and so they're all celebrating the fact that I'm the new world champion and I'm just looking around going, hmm, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's when a journalist came down and said, well, do something, like act excited about it, anything. Um, so I started jumping like a kangaroo and doing cartwheels because I didn't know what else to do. Because <laughs> relief is different to excitement. Exactly. That, that yes. sense of, oh, yeah. thank God. I can't believe it. I can't believe how hard it was. What but, were some of the, the barriers that had gotten in the way to that point? Primarily uh, my health, my head and my heart. Yeah, those were my three biggest enemies at the time, yeah. or my three biggest barriers and limitations. Um, my, and it, was, it all started with my thoughts, you know, of where, as we know, our thoughts tend to generate emotions and then those emotions determine behaviours and then the behaviours determine the results that you produce in life. And my thoughts were so, at times, so destructive, so self-sabotaging, so negative, uh, so anchored in impossible and that sabotaged me and it's amazing you know I reflect on that period and I can honestly now I can I can barely relate to the person I was when I was winning world titles because my mindset and my heart set are so very different so because I won 
uh, in a state of fear and now I live in a state of love. That's why I'm kind of like this living in this duality of... So it almost feels like a different person. It, I do, yeah, and I'm very reflective and I'm not pretending that I wasn't that because I have to embrace that's who I was to get to where I am today but I'm just so glad that I evolved from that entity. Otherwise, the way that I was going about doing what I was doing was entirely unsustainable. Yeah. So my head um, was sabotaging me. My health, I ended up with chronic fatigue twice, uh, which was an extremely debilitating illness that no one really understood and we judge what we don't understand, right? So I was just full of judgment, criticism and fear. And so then my heart was starting to question whether, am I, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, what am I looking for? What am I seeking? What am I searching for? And so when you start to layer criticism with doubt and fear, it's pretty immobilizing. It's a bit of a hot mess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a hot mess, <laughs> yes. And yet you stuck with it. Yeah. Because that kind of recipe is probably a beautiful recipe to step away from it. Absolutely. So Plenty why, of reasons to. Why stick with it? What so was... the one thing that I, the one reason I stuck with it and it's the one reason why I stick with it to this day is my love of surfing. I love to surf. I love being in the ocean. It's my place of solace. It's my place of surrender. It's a place where I feel comfortable and relaxed and a sense of freedom. And there's nowhere else in my life that I experience that. So even to this day, when I feel a sense of overwhelm, anxiety, depression, sadness, unhappiness, the first thing I do is immerse myself in the, in the ocean. And if there's no ocean nearby, I have to at least immerse myself in nature. Right, so that's become your that's go-to become place? That's become my go-to place. That's my happy place, immersing myself in nature. Mm. And if there's no nature around, then I really have to start committing to the daily rituals of gratitude and breathing and simplifying because overwhelm is just a, a reflection of the internal overwhelm. And often they're the first things to go, right? Yes. Breathing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gratitude and nature. I've got nothing to be grateful for. Life is shit. <laughs> and here's all the proof. Yes, exactly. Nothing's working. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. it's amazing uh, how quickly things can spiral out of control. So to answer your question in a very long-winded way, uh, winning my first world title, was, uh, I felt an immense, amount, uh, an immense amount of relief and satisfaction. I was very satisfied at that point, but not to the point where I was ready to just give it all away. Yeah. I got became very addicted to winning. And therefore the next thing and the next thing. And the next thing and the next thing. And then we find ourselves sitting here in a, the only purpose-built surfing high-performance centre in the world and you're in my boardroom with my trophies and my face on the board. You know? <laughs> <laughs> How did this happen? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There must be some sliding door there. moment. Yeah. So you said the love of surfing was the reason you stuck with it, you, you got through all of that doubt and all of that fear. Um, where did that come from? Where did the love of surfing come yeah. from? My childhood. Where do all our loves and fears come from? Our childhood. So I started surfing when I was four. I started skateboarding when I was three. So surfing was the natural evolution from the cement. And, and was that from around the family? Yeah, my dad was a surfer. My older brother, Jason, was also a surfer. So any young girl that grows up with an older brother doing something, you just... You want to be cool like that. You want to be cool like that. Actually, you want to be better than them. I can say I am. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with proof. With proof. Just come here. That's right. Do you have a photo that large? <laughs> I'm a sibling rivalry still. Kids in here. Do yeah. he ever want to pursue... Professional surfing? No, no. He's a longboarder. He, he still surfs. He still loves it. He stand up paddles. You know, he still has his love of, of being in the ocean. But um, no, my brother's a jack of all, actually. He, he's, he loves, similar to my dad, I think my dad bred us in a way where we're super independent and love to be in control. And so my brother's always the manager of something, you know. So, yeah, he's, he's very proactive in the, in the corporate world, predominantly. So you learnt to surf at the age of four. Mm -hmm. Getting from that point to then getting into the world of professional surfing mm. is um, is a big jump. Mm. Was it always going to be surfing or was there ever anything else on your radar? Uh, there, was, there was tennis. I did love tennis. But my love of competition emanated from growing up in Manly and having to compete with the boys in the water on a daily basis. My fighting spirit emanated from spending six weeks in a humidity crib from the first six weeks of my life and having to fight for my life. 
And then my desire to compete and become the best in the world emanates from being told I was adopted and having to prove that I'm deserving of love. And the way that I define that is by becoming a world champion at something. And at the time, it's an ambiguous goal, or it's an audacious goal as an eight-year-old, but it's also ambiguous when I say I'm going to become a world champion. <laughs> at what? Well, <laughs> anything I'm good at. That's right. Tennis, surfing, cricket, soccer, hockey. Obviously, I was never really motivated by money. And so by the time I was 14, I had chosen surfing, or surfing had chosen me. It was the one thing that I daydreamed about. It's the one thing that I would run home from school to get to. It was the one place I spent every waking moment in, which was the ocean with my surfboard. And so let's follow that one. So at the age it. of eight, mm. you decided to be a world champion. Mm -hmm. Was it about that age that you found out that you were adopted? Yeah, that's, well? that was the moment. That was the catalyst. Dad right. told me I was adopted. I went, right, I'm not worthy of love. Hang on, if I become world champion, I'll be deserving of everyone's love. Wow. Did you recognise that in the moment? No, I just knew I had to become a world champion because I had to. <laughs> and how did that conversation go with your dad? Like, well, I didn't you... have that conversation. Oh, as no, far as being told I was adopted. You know what? Um, perception starts in the brain. And no matter how reassuring and loving and tender and compassionate he was in the dissemination of the information, I chose to perceive it in a completely different way. So he was, you know, I love you and so grateful that we have you and we always wanted a baby girl and... Uh, you know, you're part of our family, however, you're not a blood relation, you come from someone else. And so from that point on, I thought, hang on, my mother gave me away. So hang on, so that means I'm not even deserving of her love. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not deserving of her love, then I'm not deserving of your love. And if I'm not deserving of your love, I'm really not deserving of anyone's love. I'm worthless. I'm, I've been abandoned. I've been rejected. I've been kicked out. So... The only way I'm going to prove to the world that I'm deserving of love, the only way that I can decide, the only way I can determine that I'm enough is to become a world champion. And not only just a one-time world champion, but the best of the best. Had to keep going. <laughs> just win six going. in a row, because no one else has. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was full-on struggle, strive, thrive and collapse. And as you say, that's a big part of who you are, but mm. there's a lot of... Um, there's some big themes for an eight-year-old yeah. to, to be navigating through um, that gives you the drive. Mm. It gives you the um, determination against all odds mm. to keep going. Mm. Um, and the odds were often stacked against me. But then I also had this fundamental belief that success had to be hard. So by believing in that, I made sure of it. So I worked hard, I trained hard, I surfed hard. I competed hard. Do you think you made it harder than it needed to be? Oh, my God, I made it so much harder than it needed to be. <laughs> yeah. I made life incredibly difficult. And I, I recognise that. So I refer to that as my survival mode mechanism. So I know when I'm in that struggle street mentality, when things, oh, God, it's all so hard, then I'm back into that old belief pattern and then I've just got to become aware of it first and then understand what expectations are moulding that or because my awareness moulds my expectations, what expectations are aligned with that, mm -hmm. and then shift it very quickly. Um, what do you notice now when you're in that mode? What, what are, like if someone was watching or what are some of your my triggers? My body language, I'm not as sprightly. I'm yeah. not as full of energy. Um, my eye contact, just my levels of energy and engagement are, are quite heavily reduced. My memory starts to fade. And what else? I'm, my body language is kind of closed and I'm, when I start to tune in, I start to hear the negative, the negative cycle of dialogue starting to occur. And then I'm not as inspired to get up every day because I love jumping out of bed. I don't even know. I mean, no two days are the same for me. I have no idea what I'm jumping out of bed to do other than just to get out and go and experience life. And I don't have that same get up and go, yeah. Yeah, some that's of the, what's lacking. Some of those triggers. Some of those triggers, yeah, yeah. That's just some of them. It's more, for me, because I'm so acutely self-aware, I'm constantly listening to what I'm saying to myself because I understand having become a world champion, utilising the power of the inner dialogue, I understand the impact that it has on my life on a daily basis. So you can't change what you can't see, but a lot of people tune out before they tune in. And I have to remind myself that that's, if I'm seeking validation, reassurance, or feedback, I'm always open to feedback, but if I'm seeking 
validation, then I know there's something wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I use that, and it's true for all of us. I think if our self-worth is attached to that, yeah. that's when it can be a bit of a sign to go, hang on here, mm. how can I reinforce that myself? Yeah. So in winning that first one, did you have a sense that there was another five to go at least? Um, when you said, you know, not only did I want to be world champion, but I wanted to be the best of the best. Yeah, well, as you know, in the world of psychology, there's a big difference between wanting and believing in something. And I wanted it, but I didn't quite believe it. And then I had a a mentor slash boyfriend slash shaper slash everything coach, a guy called Ken Bradshaw, who essentially set that goal for me. He's like, you're the best I've ever seen. You can be the best of best. And the best of the best at the time was Lisa Anderson, who'd won four in a row. I went, all right. So he said, let's go for five. And it became his goal as much as mine. So it was a vicarious goal. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, I lapped up every amount, every ounce of investment that he put into me. And um, he became, you know, my, my guide and my counsel, my sounding board, my validator, my reassurer, my coach, my shaper. He, he was everything. So we both were very absorbed in that. And at the time, it was exactly what I needed. I mean, we always get what we need. You might not always get what you want, but you get what you yeah, need. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and I needed that because I'm so easily distracted. So it was very important for me to have someone around me that eliminates all those distractions and, and forces me to a degree to focus my attention. This is where we're this going. Is where we're this going. is where you need to put your focus. Yep, this is what you need to do. These are where you're going wrong. This is where you're going right. So this is what, these are the actions that we need to take to correct it. So yeah, it was very beneficial. How, how important has that been over your career but also your life to have those key people? And it's probably been different at different points. Absolutely. Um, to back you, support you, guide you, mm. believe in you along the way. Daily. Yeah, I know everyone thinks that as an individual athlete you're doing it on your own, but I've always had an a, a extraordinary team around me of people who are either experts or honesty barometers. They're the two most important categories that I have in my life. So the people who bring the best out of me, the people who elevate me, the people who teach me and guide me and counsel me, but also the people who are really honest with me and don't let me get away with my shit. I love that honesty barometer. Yeah. It's a really good way of putting it because mm. they're the kind of ones that are going, coming up and down and yeah. I'll be really honest with you today. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then okay. there's people who would just want to be critical of you Yes. and that's when you've just, as a teenager, as a 20-year-old, I didn't have the self-awareness or the emotional intelligence to go, that's your shit, not mine, yeah. because I took on everything. You know, we all want to belong and we all want to be acknowledged and accepted and appreciated. So uh, I remember feeling deeply distressed by a lot of criticism that I copped as a kid, especially being the, the lone female in a very male-dominated environment. But I learnt to learn the difference, to define the difference between accepting criticism and then honest, constructive feedback. And, and I imagine not only at that young age and, and the self-awareness of navigating that, but I imagine when you're at the peak of your the world champions that you're also looking for what's the edge. So mm. you're almost, it's probably a question, are you then absorbing every piece of feedback because that might be the thing or that's the thing that I need to... No, because as you become more successful, your preparation becomes more tactile. You know what's working, you know what's not. You become more self-accountable. And so I was very selective with who I tapped into, very selective with who I listened to and became very discerning with that those choices. So... I didn't just go, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. And I still to this day sometimes do just freely listen to everybody and almost go with what was the latest piece of information was that shared with me. And I acknowledge that that's one of my weaknesses. You know, I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. But the person that just spoke to me 10 minutes ago said that was a bad idea. Oh, well. <laughs> you've convinced, you were the last. Yeah, you've convinced me that that was a way better idea. Yes. <laughs> and I'm not even reading into your agenda or anything like that. Yeah. So... I can be a little bit too malleable. You know, when I was winning those six in a row, I had done a very good job of rejecting a lot of people out of my life who were there for the right reasons as well. So there's a lot of lessons that I've learned from those six world titles. And then there's a lot of lessons that I've learned from winning the seventh one, which stands on its own, mm. you know, with, um, because it was a completely different mindset and heart set. So, and we can talk about that in some other time or later. <laughs> but um, the, the one th phrase that I can wrap around this bit is that, the quality of questions you ask determines the quality of your life. It all starts with being clear about what you want. 
And if you don't know what you want, you can't ask quality questions. And therefore you can't surround yourself with quality people because then you do become like a, a rudderless boat being blown in the wind. And you'll turn left, then you'll turn right, then you'll go straight, then you'll go backwards. And you're, you're lacking direction and clarity. So starting with what you want, getting yep. really, really clear on Get that. Get clear on that. And then you can ask the questions and feedback or yeah. take on board what yeah. you can and what you will. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be based on a long-term outcome. It just needs to be what do you want right now in this moment? And a lot of us base our questioning on what's going to happen in 10 years' time <laughs> where it's actually right now that, that you need to be making those decisions. I think that that is critical as well because sometimes it's the overwhelm of I should know what I want and I don't know what I want and mm. I'm not even there's so many options and they're all good options but I'm not sure which to but to actually bring it back and go right this minute mm. today mm. the next hour maybe what you want is lunch like yeah. it might just be that simple right I was <laughs> having a discussion stop. with my acupuncture a couple of days ago acupuncture um, um acupuncturist <laughs> a few days ago and I was lying on the table face down, being a pincushion, and he was telling me about this phone call that he had about someone who was about to take the second treatment room that he has in his, his practice because he's got two, two treatment rooms, one that's empty, and then he's, got, he's cornered off an area in his house to be his bedroom so then he can have roommates in the other main bedroom, and then he's got this bungalow out the back, like granny flat out the back, so it's, it's a moving feast. And then he's like, so I don't know if I, because I was really looking forward to this person coming in and taking this room, but now that's fallen through. So now I don't know whether I need to open it up to three rooms and move back into my bedroom so then I don't have to have roommates, but then I'll still have that person out the back, but that's okay. Or do I keep it as it is and just have two treatment rooms? And I was just, I was tired. (laughs) And I just looked at him and went, it sounds like you've put three different coordinates in a GPS and still expecting your car to find your way. Love it. And it's amazing how they just stop, but all of a sudden, because they're on this roller coaster, they've got to keep going to justify their thoughts and actions. And, you know, my favourite saying is stop rationalising because you're telling me rational lies. That's one of my favourite things to say. <laughs> so, where does that come from? So, rational lies? Well, it's just, it, you just break down rational lies. <laughs> you're trying to make this clear or right for yeah, you. Yeah, it's like, are you trying to convince me or yourself? Mm. But either way, you're rationalising, which determined, which declares to me that you're not congruent and you're not clear. So get clear, then get congruent with that clarity, then you won't have to rationalise anything. And then people won't question you. And then you don't have to question yourself. Perfect. And then you're not, you're not asking the wrong questions, you're not asking the wrong people. Exactly. Because the wrong questions tend to associate themselves with validation and reassurance. Um, and once again, you're not asking anything valuable there. <laughs> so I want to come back in where you mentioned around the seventh world title being completely different to the other six, which you did six in a row, mm-hmm. back to back. In nothing but fear. In nothing but fear. Mm. So what was different about number seven? There was one in love. There what was... changed between six and seven then? Because My health. Some serious work that yeah. needs to be done. I did a lot of work. Back. My health became heavily compromised. So I tore my medial and meniscus in my left or right knee. Um, in two, so I won my sixth in 2003. I tore my ligaments in 2004. And then once again, pushed through it, pushed through it. I was just the queen of pushing. I had no compassion. I was tagged as having the compassion of a tiger shark. And that was for my competitors. So you can imagine how little compassion I had for myself. <laughs> and so I was doing a photo shoot. I even went to Alaska on a surf trip and my neck had flared up. Now I had a really bad neck injury where a wave that was probably ceiling height in Tahiti landed on the back of my neck and it herniated a disc. And I ignored the symptoms and ignored the pain for five years. Just push through it, push through it, you'll be fine. And that's the tough love mentality. It's also not addressing the shame that's wrapped up in making mistakes and being wrong and those kind of things. I should things. have known better. Yeah, yeah I should have known better. Yeah, I, I knew I, I knew something had happened, but I just didn't want to look at it. Because I also grew up in an environment of tough love where I almost broke my neck surfing when I was nine years old and Dad said, lie down, you'll be right, get over it. Or I, you know, my, I smashed my knee and it blew up to twice the size. A friend came over and went, oh, my God, that looks horrible. Are you okay? And Dad looked at me and said, just get her a bloody wheelchair. So that tough love taught me (laughs) to suffer in silence, which is what I did. Now, towards the end of 2004, my body was starting to break down. And then in 2005, I pushed through it again. And then my neck injury flared back up and something just snapped between my shoulder blades. When I got an MRI and it indicated a C5-6 disc herniation in my neck, 
that was severing 80% of my spinal cord. Wow. My left arm had been numb for years, so I just, you know, had atrophy and all sorts of, of pain, but I just ignored it. You know, winning was more important than dealing with discomfort and pain. So um, fast forward to the 2005, I was um, forced to either retire, get surgery or rest. And I chose rest and I'm really glad I did. I took almost six months out and committed myself wholeheartedly daily to doing whatever I had to do to heal my body without having to go under the knife. Because to fix a disc herniation, you have to go through your throat. I have to cut my throat. And I wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was just more, my, I had a third opinion that said you're young enough, fit enough and strong enough to allow your body to heal itself. So that's when I explored all forms of healing. And I went on a very strict diet. I did meditation daily, yoga daily. Instead of wearing a neck brace, I had a towel wrapped around my head all day, around my neck all day, every day. When I was walking, driving, sitting, I couldn't sit longer than 10 minutes without ex experiencing extreme discomfort and pain. So it was a long suffering um, period for me. Were you taking pain medication or going down the kind of medical model? No. Or you were looking for everything? Everything but. natural, yeah. Yeah, I didn't take any pain medication. Didn't I had one cortisone shot throughout my whole surfing career because that's when the pain just got too intense. But I have a very high threshold of pain, so I just couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> I even went to hyperbaric chambers. I tried um, magnetic therapy, and so that basically what happened was I found this practitioner in in America who a lot of the other surfers were using a guy called Kent, who does biosync therapy. And that was the one thing that really enabled me to transmute a lot of the baggage and, and just process it and eliminate it because I've what learned. What is biosync therapy? Oh, you'll have to look it up to yeah, get a really yeah. good idea of it. But it, it's a matter of, of processing physical pain to remove emotional pain. Because our bodies store our pain, our emotional pain in a physical way, it's the body's way of distracting you from dealing with the emotions. So it'll distract you with an emo a physical ailment so you don't deal with the emotional component of it. So I was going below the surface very deeply and did this therapy for a couple of years to process all of the emotions that I'd been harbouring. I, I became aware of this style of, of treatment back in 1997, the year before I won my first world title when I did a, a rebirthing. And I, I went into the, the breathing technique that's associated with rebirthing. And that's when I became aware of my fear of rejection due to being adopted. adopted. So all of these things amounted into um, me essentially owning my shit. I just had to face up to the music that I'm, I've got all these challenges and issues and, and I've, I've the weight of the world on my shoulders and all of this expectation and fear and rejection and abandonment and, and anger and sadness, like as we all do, right? We all harbour that stuff, but I just didn't want to carry it around anymore. Mm. I wanted to process it. And it's amazing in different areas you store it in. And if you've ever read any of Louise Hay's work, You Can Heal Your Life, amazing how different every part of our body pertains to an emotional element. So... Um, you know, shoulders are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders and neck is a fear of looking into the past and knees are ego and feet is a lack of understanding and, you know, so you've got all these different things. So now whenever I start feeling discomfort in my body, I ask myself, what am I holding on to? What am I afraid of? You know, when I, when I was writing my biography, my neck was always in pain. <laughs> I don't want to look back. I don't, want, I don't want to look at this shit. I don't want to look at this shit. Okay, yes, okay. Yeah, and left side pertains to female, right side pertains to male. So if it's ever a left side element, I go, is it me? Is it my mother? Is it my sister? Right side, is it my husband? Is it my dad? Is it my brother? Yeah. <laughs> or is it just the right side of me, you know, the male side of me? Mm. What, am I, what am I holding on to? What am I clinging to? So powerful kind of work mm. and really hard work really so hard what work. you're talking about is is diving into some really really tough emotional stuff and mm. this is something that for years you just you hadn't no. um and the the tough love kind of piece is probably I imagine there's probably a part in, in your head that's going just suck it up just get on with it yes just. yeah <laughs> so but fortunately what doing, helped you get through that well doing the biosync work um Essentially, you, you understand that the universe knows that you know better. 
So the funny thing is, as human beings, because we're such creatures of habit, if we go and commit to doing something different and it doesn't work, then we'll resort back to what we know. Whereas I had committed to doing something different and the universe would never let me resort back to what I know. It was, it was not an option. I couldn't go back to competing and living and believing the way that I had. The funny thing is, you know, when you have these lofty expectations and life keeps delivering down here, everything in the middle is pain, suffering and struggle. And I had burst through that on so many occasions and achieved my expectations that I'd come to believe that the only way to get here was through all that. Yeah. So learning to trust in something completely different or the opposite of that, it requires a lot of commitment and hard work and, and a lot of belief uh, and a lot of self-validation and reassurance and, yeah, a lot of self-reflection, looking in the mirror and asking yourself the hard questions. So you're now putting on your wetsuit for the competition, which will ultimately become seventh world champion for you. Yeah. And you are doing this one through love, yeah. not fear, mm. having done the work. Mm. What's different? How does that one feel different, putting on that wetsuit? Well, it felt light, it felt easy, it felt effortless, it felt graceful, it felt fun. I hadn't had that kind of experience in the water for quite some time. Am I allowed to do yeah, this? Yeah, is, is this real? <laughs> is this what everyone else is yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I made it. So the first event back was up in Queensland at the Roxy Pro and at uh, Durambart moved to from Snapper and I made it to the final. And I remember sitting in the water in the quarterfinals, maybe it was even the third round, and I was going, what a beautiful day. God, the sun feels good on my skin and the water feels kind of silky and looking down, oh, there's some fish floating about. And oh, oh, oh that's right, I'm in a heat. <laughs> and that would have been a new experience? A totally new experience. And so what it, it required consistent practice because I had to remind myself success does not have to be hard. Success can be achieved through effortlessness and grace and joy and gratitude and love. Like, why don't you want to believe in that? <laughs> Let's make it so. And so, I, and then I made the final of that event and then the head started going, well, hang on, you don't deserve to be here. You haven't surfed for six months. You haven't done the pain. You've been back, yeah, you haven't done the work. You haven't, you've been back in the water for 10 days and now you're in the final of the first event of the year. What are you thinking? Is that right? Yeah. So you've been in the water for 10 days yeah. and gone into the final. Mm. And so then I fell on my first wave and, uh, and Kelly Slater was commentating the heat and I remember hearing him go, oh, my neck. <laughs> she was making fun of me. And I thought, you know what, if you can't laugh at yourself, then don't laugh at anyone else. So I just had a giggle at that and that kind of shifted the negativity and the fear. And I fought back, but I still lost because I'd already sabotaged myself before I went in the water. Same thing happened at the next event and the next event. I made the final of the first three events going, what am I doing here? How is this happening? So it, it, the ebbs and flows of it are just a natural um, part of being human, really, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, you talked, a, you touched on a little bit uh, going through chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. A lot of people know that, that term but probably don't have a strong understanding of, of what it is. Mm. Can you describe what it is yeah. and then how it, how it impacted for you? So chronic fatigue is different for everybody and like you say, a lot of people don't understand it. There's so much conflicting knowledge about it. If you go on Dr Google, which is the worst thing you can do, you'll find there's no one real source of information that can give you clear knowledge around it. So I've become a source of information for a lot of people because I've just openly, candidly and honestly written about my experience with chronic fatigue. And, and so I share that information with people who are going through with it and saying, this is how I overcame it. Now, I, I've helped three people overcome chronic fatigue and it's as a much a physical and health challenge as it is a mental challenge. So you get the brain fog, you get that lack of concentration, you get the negativity coming in, but that just stays there like this dark cloud. You kind of feel like Eeyore all the time. Oh me, oh my. Um, you are constantly fatigued. Um, bloating from the smallest amount of food. Uh, I, had, I had really severe um, symptoms because I chose to ignore them for such a long period of time. I'm really good at ignoring shit that's going on in my life. It's good to know what your best worst talent I'm is. I'm so good at ignoring stuff. <laughs> so I had really severe tinea, I had really severe bloating, I remember looking for validation and reassurance for my competition which just disturbed me. <laughs> um, my lack of concentration, my inability to focus my attention. There was just so many things going on and then um, I couldn't sleep 
well and my diet was all over the shop. I had severe cravings of sugar and yeast, which is what candida feeds on. And, and it wasn't until I went to a, a naturopath that it became aware that I became aware of the fact that I had chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, fortunately, the first time I was, uh, I was really early in the stages. And I, being the extreme athlete, I skipped glandular fever. I just went straight into chronic fatigue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing going on. I'm going to do it the best way Yeah, I can. I'm just going to do it hard and fast. Let's get straight into this. <laughs> and the second time was the debilitating the phase where I had really severe depression associated with it and had suicidal tendencies and just lost my mojo, lost my reason for living lost my love of life. And it was a really discerning, a really distressing time. And so it wasn't until I hit my deepest, darkest point did I have the courage to put my hand up and ask for help. And I, and I reflect back on that and go, gee, I wish I didn't take so long. But hey, well, you know, it did. And I still came out of it okay. How so did you ask for help? I acknowledged first that I was not in a really good place. And then I rang a girlfriend who I knew had been through a similar experience glandular fever and and it was a, a professional swimmer. So swimmers are pretty prone to this style of thing because of how much duress they put their bodies under. So I rang her and said, I'm not, I'm not doing well. And she knew that I wasn't well, but she, her first response was, what took you so long? They're my honesty barometers. They're the ones that, they, they don't let me get away with this shit. You know, they're like, you, you can't change anything in your life until you're ready to do it. And it takes a level of dissatisfaction before you do anything. And I got dissatisfied. I got afraid as well. I was scared. So I just went, I need help. Somebody help me. And I knew who to reach out to at the time. And she was very um, supportive and put me in touch with this naturopath. And then I had to go through a very long journey of coming back and taking yeast, wheat, sugar, dairy, fruit, red meat, alcohol, nothing, tin can of reserve, everything out of my diet and start again. There's no gluten-free menus back then. No, no, it's, it's kind of a cool thing to <laughs> oh, have these so days, cool. but it's, back then it's all the joy and fun out of life. Yes, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Um, you know, no corn, no nuts, no anything. And the, and the most disappointing thing of this is you take everything out of your diet and you don't lose weight because your body's depleted. It's, it's holding on to any little element of nutrition that you can provide it. And that's the one aspect of chronic fatigue that frustrates me is that doctors don't support the nutritional component because I had this girl, this lady who came down and sat with me at breakfast. Uh, her husband was really worried about her because she had chronic fatigue and I helped her through it. And, and at breakfast, she was going to order mushrooms on toast. I'm liking fungus, yeast, sugar, dairy, right there. Has, not, has anyone told you that those things are really bad for your gut, especially when your gut is under attack right now? She's like, no. Okay, let's start from the beginning. <laughs> let's look at what you're eating. Yeah. Let's look at how you're thinking. Let's look at what you're saying to yourself. Let's listen to the internal dialogue. Let's start taking ownership of the actions that we take on a daily basis. And that's the thing with chronic fatigue is that these people say, I'm doing my best to live a normal life. There's nothing normal about living with chronic fatigue. You have to be all in to get all out of it. And a lot of people, they feel good one day and then they go and run up a hill. And it's like, having a bank account that's $1,000 overdrawn, you've just put in 100 bucks, and then you're gonna go back in and take that 100 bucks out, and you're still gonna be overdrawn. So. <laughs> so the nutrition, yeah. um, did you at that time start to work on some of those thoughts? Yes. As well? Diarising, yep. journaling, yep. You know, writing down stuff, not harboring it in my mind, thinking that doesn't exist. It does exist, it's become a thought, therefore it's real. It's not who you are, but it's a real thing. So eliminating all of that stuff by just writing it down and writing it down free of judgment. Drinking copious amounts of water to eliminate the toxins, taking extraordinary amounts of vitamin C and sleeping 14 hours a day. First, the first thing I had to do was forgive myself. I had to forgive Did myself. Did someone tell you that? Or was no. that a realisation? It was a realisation. I think I read something in a book that I was reading, I don't remember what it was, and I just went, you know, I need to forgive myself for putting myself in this position because at the moment I'm still full of judgment of it. And because everyone's so full of judgment of me, I'm beating them to the punch. So I'm gonna judge myself first so you don't get a chance. <laughs> There's nothing they can say. <laughs> nothing you can say, say exactly, myself. that I haven't said already. Yeah, yeah. That, and that self-talk is so powerful. Mm. Um, I've certainly heard that phrase that we need to be talking to ourselves like we would our best friends, yes. people that we love the most, and yet we don't often stop mm. and no. do that. Yeah, and, really and the, the relationship that we have with ourselves sets the tone for every other relationship that we have outside of us. So, 
yeah, people wonder why, you know, I, like I love watching these. Well, I don't normally love, but I'm loving watching The Bachelor at the moment. Thank it's you. a train wreck of television. <laughs> but what fascinates me about these programs is these people go into these environments looking for love. And I just want to scream through the television, just look in the mirror. You are so love there. You are so full of love. You are so deserving of love. You are, you know, you are beautiful. And, but no matter how much someone tells you, no, you're not going to believe it until you can tell yourself and actually accept it. So I, that's why I didn't really love myself for those six consecutive world titles, but I was in a state of love and gratitude the whole time I was competing for my seventh one. So for the first time ever, I would come out of a heat having lost it and not cry because I didn't have the weight of expectation. I was actually free to go, wow, I surfed really good today. Or wow, you know what, I made a couple of mistakes. I'll learn from that next week. Yeah. <laughs> that's freedom. Far that's out. Freedom, that's right. freedom. Yeah. 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 What? Because obviously that's a big part of who you are now. Yeah. Um, how does some of that mentality and I guess what you do to keep in that headspace mm. serve you in in the work that you do now? So it requires a daily commitment for me to stay in that headspace. I'm. Being a Gemini, I'm very flippant, very easily distracted. I can be so focused yet so distracted at the same time. Camera, oh, hi there. Oh, no, you. There's one of my trophies. I can hear voices out there. Looks like it's going to rain. Yeah, you know? <laughs> there's plenty on the go. <laughs> so much going on in my head. So it requires a daily, it's the daily rituals that I know when I'm in a state of overwhelm and I'm feeling the stress, my daily rituals go out the window. The daily ritual of, of waking up and doing a breathing exercise, asking myself the first question of the day, which is, what am I grateful for today? Um, going back to my mantra, using my four words that are self-defining, and then committing, and committing the time in my diary to surf every day, because that's my happy place, or doing something that I love every day, making sure that I've got the time at least to maybe stand in the sun for five minutes and just absorb the rays. You know, anything that makes me feel alive, Otherwise, I'm depleted myself. And then my job as a motivational speaker is to motivate and inspire. <laughs> and yet here I am feeling like shit. <laughs> so I pride myself on being authentic and genuine, yet I can't do what I do with any level of authenticity if I haven't done the work myself. I can't expect anyone else to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. So that's why it's so important for me to be continuing to do these rituals and stay true to who I am and what I want because it's very easily to get distracted by what everyone else wants for me or wants of me. Especially when life is so different and you described before every day mm. can be completely different. Every so, day is so almost having those things that you're holding onto. Mm. Um, so the journaling, breathing. Um, so you have a key mantra. I do. That's yours. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Are you happy to share that or is that yeah, something so that you... you know, there's times when we wake up and we have these words that describe us that aren't very serving and so I have those days you know two days ago I was saying to my husband I was driving up to you to do a keynote presentation in Byron Bay and I said to him you know I think I've lost my confidence as a speaker and I know that when I'm feeling overwhelmed uh, I lose my confidence in life if I'm exhausted I've lost my confidence and second thing is if I'm ever comparing myself to someone I'm always going to feel inadequate because that's a result of comparison <laughs> so I was comparing myself to other speakers. I haven't been on the stage for quite a while. I was feeling exhausted because I had so much going on in my head. I'd lost con contact with my daily rituals. And so I was just saying, you know what, I'm over it. I'm done. I'm, I'll have to find something else to do because I'm not good enough to be doing this. And I went and gave a keynote. I know that the action is the antidote to fear. So I went and gave this keynote presentation. As Kirk said, I was doing the PowerPoint on the plane on the way up and I was landing and an hour later I was on stage. So he said, listen, if you're feeling like you're lacking your confidence, just go back to what you know. Just keep it simple. Don't make it any different. And I said, yeah, okay. So I just stripped some things out of, the, out of my PowerPoint and I went and gave this presentation. I got a standing ovation. And people all night were telling me how much it changed their lives and impacted them and how it made them, you know, it was so many aha moments. And I just went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let it go, Lane. <laughs> Universe is telling you something. Yes. This is making, you're making it up. You're making it up. Know. So the mantra that I have is I am happy, I am healthy, I am fit and I am strong. And it's the power of I am that I learnt from winning my sixth consecutive world title and how I utilise that word, those two words. Mm to reinvent myself and to, to um, 
kind of recalibrate my mental state. The other, so that's my, that's kind of like my positive mantra. But the mantra that I have that I wake up and go to sleep with every single day is this. And it comes from a belief that when I go on holidays, I break away from surfing for two weeks, I put on weight. And as a girl who's prided herself on looking good in a bikini, uh, that's, a, that's a big uh, compromise for a holiday. So I've decided to start believing in something different. And so what I did was I, put, I made this an experiment because I was reading a really good book about the power of the subconscious mind and how it just makes everything so. Whatever you say, the power of the subconscious mind goes, okay, sure, can't reason with you. Can't go, hang on, yesterday you were saying this, but now today you're saying that. I don't understand. Okay, yep, sure, let's just keep doing that. Okay, yep, sure, let's make that happen. So instead of thinking, oh God, it's, you know, I've been away from the ocean for a week, I'm gonna get fat. Okay, sure, I'll make you fat. You know, <laughs> I decided to think, okay, I'm really grateful for my fast metabolism. I'm grateful for how my metabolism keeps my body fit, lean and toned. And I, kept, and I, I put a visual of what my body looks like when it feels that way. And so that became the subconscious image that I was continuously throwing onto my subconscious mind. The next thing I would say is, because when I go on holidays, I break down, my immune system becomes dysfunctional and I get sick. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get fat, then I'm going to get sick. <laughs> so, and this is a holiday. And, and this is a holiday. <laughs> and this came from two years ago, I went away with this long story. I'm sorry, listeners. Yeah. But two years ago, I went away with some friends and he said, he relayed a story that he said to his girlfriend. He goes, this is what's going to happen. So Lan's going to come with us. She's going to get sick in the first week. <laughs> and then she's not going to start, you know, she's going to stop taking care of herself. So <laughs> I went, oh, so if this seems to be if a pattern. Other people notice. If other people then, notice it, then yeah. this is something I need to address. Yeah. So the second thing I say to myself is I'm grateful for my strong immune system that keeps me free of illness, disease, or infection. And then the last thing I say is because I always say to myself, I have really bad circulation, I'm making it so. Mm -hmm. So now I say, and I'm really grateful for my robust circulation that keeps my hands and feet warm in even the coldest of temperatures and pumps my body full of fresh blood and oxygen every minute. Really powerful. It's almost like you're taking those main fears mm. at the time yeah. and, and flipping it. Yes. And it's going, what's the opposite of that? And, and that's it's what actually I do. possible. Because I've learned that as an athlete, you know, if you're thinking negative, you've got to catch it and flip it. So I was starting to think about what are the three main things that I need to ensure that I can function at my best on a daily basis. Now there's days when I'm not feeling that great. There's days when I'm looking in the mirror going, I'm fat, or and then I go, hang on. <laughs> so the great thing about mantras is they become your accountability partners. And you have to get up and say it tomorrow, so you may as well start to believe I it. I say it before I go to bed. I yeah. say it when I'm going, you know, I say it when I'm going to sleep. I say it when I wake up, the first thing I say when I wake up. Even if I'm just sitting in the car and I start thinking about stuff that's distracting me, I'll come back and just say that. So it's just become like this daily ritual. And now it's just really easy just to roll off the tongue. And then I start thinking about, you know what? My subconscious mind made me, it can heal me. It can repair my body, it can relax my body, it can realign my spine. Whatever I need, I know I can do that. What's exciting you about what you're doing at the moment? The growth that I'm experiencing myself. And that's what I'm in the relentless pursuit of. As an athlete, I was in the relentless pursuit of improvement, but now I've changed that to being a, a pursuit of growth. So that's the most exciting thing of it. Where are you growing? What, what aspects? Emotionally, you... mentally. Um, I'm growing, actually I'm growing wholeheartedly. That's where I feel like I'm growing the most, to use a Brene Brown term. Oh, we love Brene Brown. Oh. <laughs> Just my absolute She's awesome. favourite. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it is that, that compassion for yourself to actually look after mm. what you're going through yeah. and where you're at at that point in time. Yeah. And therefore what you can then give and exactly. you know, out to others. And I had that discussion with a lady who I impacted off, when I, off stage the other night where she said, you know what, I've given my whole life to my kids and I was really fit and healthy when I was younger and now look at me, I'm 40 kilos overweight and I resent the person I've become. So I'm going to start taking action now. And she went to the pool. I used to love swimming, I used to love water polo. Now, of course, I just don't like the way I look. So she said, screw it, and she went and jumped in the pool and swam, and it brought her to tears. She's like, I can't believe I stopped doing this, all because I thought I had to give to my children all the time. But now it's time to give to me. And so that's one of the things I like to reassure people, that until you give to yourself, you can't give to others. So that's what I do now. It's very selfish. 
apparently, <laughs> oh, but it's actually selfless. Told. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's not the irony of it, yeah. is that we're told that it is selfish. But mm. you're right, what, who you are as a mum or as a parent, as a co-worker, as a colleague or as a neighbour, mm. is very different when you come from that place. Yeah. And it's half an hour in the pool or it's an yeah. hour in the pool. Like, yeah. It's not a lifetime. Exactly. But it's powerful. Yeah. And so this afternoon I chose to be 10 minutes late to lunch to catch up with friends because I wanted to spend 30 minutes in the water. Yeah. I understand that because yeah. they know how important it is to me. That choice is okay. And they're still there. They're still there. <laughs> and I, the, quite often I am late for appointments because of the surf. Like I had to go, I, I narrate a TV show called Beach Cops and the first episode, the first day of recording, I was an hour late well, almost an hour late, and I texted the producer on the way. I went, I'm so sorry. The waves were pumping this morning. I couldn't get out. And they just laughed and went, that is the best excuse I've ever heard. I said, it's true. I wish I could get away. I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, I'll give see it if a I go. can. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I want to come full circle, Lane. I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and where you've come through. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Mm -hmm. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? It means staying true to myself, I think, and you probably hear that cliche, but it means standing, I mean, we're all born to stand out, not fit in, and it's a matter of just embracing who you are and, and all your misgivings, all your, all your bits and pieces, you know, um, and just being true to you. I mean, that's the greatest gift we can give ourselves is the commitment to be true to ourselves. And that to me means that you're standing out and standing up for what you believe in. And that's worth, worth pursuing. Yes. And worth jumping in the waves for, I reckon too. Every day, <laughs> if not twice a day. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lane. You're welcome, Ali. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.